Our reading this morning is from Romans 14 and can be found on page 1140 of the Bibles on your seat and will be on the screen as well. Starting at the first verse. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister, or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It's written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, 
but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. This is the word of the Lord. Malcolm, thank you very much indeed. Uh, so we're going to be following that passage from Romans uh, chapter 14. As Sue said at the start of the service, we are uh, working through this series of one another's and we've come this week to this uh, command not to pass judgment on one another. And last week, if you were here, uh, we were looking at the encouragement to, en- to honor one another. And one reason we might resist honoring one another is that we find our fellow Christians annoying. You don't find some fellow Christians, and I bet you do, full of hang-ups, hypocritical, not worthy of the honor that I'm told I should give to them. And that brings us to Romans 14, where Paul talks about stopping, passing judgment on one another, and not being contemptuous of one another, which seem to me to be two sides of the same coin. We need to think about the situation in Rome that Paul is addressing before then we try and see what this means for us. The Roman church, as you might imagine, was a very international uh, church, even in those days. So, because it was the capital of the Roman world, there were lots of different kinds of people, and they had disagreements and quarrels about all kinds of things. The two that are highlighted in this chapter are firstly uh, a quarrel over food and whether it was right for a Christian to eat meat and all food, or whether Christians should all be vegetarian. And secondly, uh, in the sense the quarrel was where you stood on holy days and holidays. And some people were saying, doesn't really matter, Uh, every day's a day. Other people were saying we should should do special things uh, to mark special occasions. And there was disagreement about that. And before we look at that in, again, more detail, a note about being vegetarian. In the first century, there were many vegetarians. Uh, Some, as in the world today, were vegetarian by necessity, normally the necessity of poverty, so that you couldn't afford meat. Uh, But there weren't then the environmental or animal welfare concerns that we would recognize today. Uh, The concerns were moral and ritual or ceremonial. So, for instance, earlier this year, uh, we had the imam from the Chesham Mosque uh, came to have uh, dinner with us before we came uh, down here. And so before he came, I spent a good amount of time on the phone with his son, who's called Irfan. And we were talking about the menu, what I can serve, what I can't serve. Uh, And then I spent another half hour at the local halal butcher Uh, where I had a great conversation with a guy there. I explained, look, the imam and his whole family, it's about 15 of them, they were coming uh, for dinner, and uh, what could I serve them? And he so found me the best cuts of lamb, and after a little bit of encouragement, gave me a discount uh, too. And and that's because if you've got Jewish friends or uh, Muslim friends, uh, you will know that the question is not, I do eat meat or I don't eat meat, The question is, where's the meat from? Has it been sourced? Has it been killed? 
And the same was exactly true uh, for people living in Rome in the first century. Uh, so the question was not, is it right or wrong in and of itself to eat meat? Uh, the question was, if the meat has been prepared or killed uh, or treated in a certain way, does it become unclean? Now, I promise you, I'm not ducking the issue, uh, but it, it is a whole other discussion as to whether Christians in the 21st century should or should not uh, be vegetarians. And there are compelling arguments on either side, but they're not for today. So, here's the situation. There is uh, a disagreement between Christians regarding diet and the observation of holy days. And the division lines seem to fall between established Christians like Paul, and actually on, this, uh, two, on these two issues, they take what you might call a more relaxed view. So yes, Paul says, I can eat meats, that's fine, and I'm not really bothered about days being special. So there's Paul and more established Christians on one side, and then there are other Christians, probably Gentile Christians, but we don't know for sure, who were very sensitive to the question of how meat had been treated and prepared in the local market. And maybe from their, their pagan background, they'd been, in a sense, more, a th more an intricate part of that process. And they were saying, well, as Christians, I want nothing to do with any of this. I'm going to stay away uh, from meat that's been prepared in certain ways. Now, Paul says here and elsewhere, he says, I believe in a creator God, and so therefore everything in God's world is good and is to be enjoyed. And uh, Paul certainly knew about Peter's vision, where God declared all foods clean, ceremonially speaking. He knew that in Mark chapter 7, Jesus himself declares all foods clean. And again, that's not to say that we should eat all foods, but no foods in and of themselves in a ritual or a ceremonial point of view are uh, beyond the pale or are tainted. God's world, says Paul, is a good world, and it's for us to enjoy. And as I said before, he's really not bothered about holidays. Uh, what matters is that we honor and love God. And so if I keep uh, a special day and do it in a special way, Paul says, go for it. It's absolutely fine. Just make sure that my motive in doing so is to honor God and to love God and express uh, worship to God rather than my motive being uh, I like uh, special days, or I like doing things in certain ways, or I feel a, a bit aloof and better than other people because I know secret ways uh, to make my faith uh, special and different. Now, if you have read the other parts of the New Testament, you will know that Paul is actually quite often a feisty opponent when it comes to matters of eternal truth, uh, as should we. So why does he take a gentler and more pragmatic line here? He urges acceptance. He urges patience. He says, look, uh, just live comfortably with these different views. Be kind to each other. Have a deep respect for each other's conscience. He doesn't say, this is the truth on this subject, and anyone who departs from it is not really a Christian. He says, I see truth both sides the important thing is uh, respecting. If you're the more established Christian, don't look down on younger Christians. If you're the younger Christian, don't judge at the older Christians as though somehow they've gone flabby uh, or they've lost the plot. Don't pass judgment on one another 
Paul says. So if your brother or your sister in this circumstance is stressed out by what you in good conscience are eating, then don't eat it. Honor their conscience. Treat them tenderly. Don't look down your nose at them. Now, in saying that the faith of younger Christians is weak, Paul is suggesting that they have not yet worked out all the consequences of God being our creator, of Jesus being our crucified and risen Lord, and of Jesus being our judge. And it's very interesting, if you read the passage, Paul does two things at the same time. On the one hand, he's busy carrying on persuading people of what he held as the deeper Christian truth. And for Paul, that would be that morally and ceremonially, no food is unholy or uh, tainted. And that uh, observing special days in special ways does not make you a better Christian. So he's, he's holding that, he's teaching that. I think in one-to-one conversations, he would encourage people to think in that way. Whilst at the same time, he's remaining incredibly sensitive to other people. And if appropriate... This is what gets us in the 21st century. If appropriate, he will change his behavior in order to honor their conscience. It's really, really important to him that the faith of fellow Christians, especially those who are younger in the faith, is not shipwrecked by overbearing believers. I trust it's important to you too. Now, like me, you will have some questions about how this works out. The main one for me as I was reading this passage is, how do I know, so in verse 14, sorry, chapter 14, verse 1, Paul says, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. And the question is, how do I know what is a disputable matter and what is not a disputable matter? Because I think we all know that Paul, of all people, is not saying, when it comes to matters of faith, let's just agree to disagree. So he's not saying, well, have you got problems with the divinity of Jesus? We don't really care. Just come along and join in, because as long as we're one big happy family, it doesn't matter. If you're saying, well, I don't really believe Jesus dying on the cross did anything for the world. Well, just come on in and and just relax, and we'll just chill together. Uh, Paul is not saying that. He contends for truth so often. We know from the book of Galatians that actually on quite a similar issue, but the issue this time was should Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians share food together? So it's still about food, but it's now about who you should share food with. Paul goes exactly the opposite way, and he has a big ding-dong with Peter, because Peter has started to eat separately from other Gentile Christians, and they have a big ding-dong and a public falling out, and Paul says to Peter, you're out of order. So Paul is not saying, we'll just agree to disagree on everything. Uh, The question, of course, is who decides what is a disputable matter? Uh, What happens if I think that an issue is disputable, or sometimes we use the language of it being secondary, and you think it's primary and non-negotiable, what happens then? Well, we have some advice here. Uh, We do so respectfully, remembering that we are all servants. No masters and mistresses here. We're all servants of God, and we will all appear before the same judge. 
And so for in all of these disagreements and in all of these conversations, the first thing that we remember is that we have to search our own hearts. You and I both know that we take positions on issues and subjects for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes it's just pure bloody-mindedness. Sometimes it's because that's what our parents thought or that's what our parents didn't think. You know, there are all kinds of reasons that we have for taking the views and the positions that we do. And Paul says, we're all going to be judged, we're all servants, so check your own heart first and just make sure when you're in disagreement with somebody or over an issue that your heart is good and it is pure. At the same time, we have the whole of the Bible there wisely uh, to help us uh, consider and weigh these issues. We have the accumulated wisdom of the church uh, to help us work out the difference between what we might call Christian essentials. You sort of imagine it visually as a kind of, as the center of the target. Uh, the, the things that are inside that line are the things that really are the non-negotiables. These are the things that we hold dearly to. These are the things that make us Christians. And you've got another sort of set around the outside uh, where uh, there is room for respectful disagreement. And the Christian creeds are a brilliant guide here. In a sense, a summary of what fits in uh, this circle here, uh, the things that are absolutely key. Now, in my own experience, and I'm sure yours is the same, I have worshipped and served alongside Christians with whom I've disagreed. And it's been an absolute pleasure and an education for me. I've, uh, I've worked alongside people uh, with whom I've disagreed about who gets baptized. Now, I personally am pro-children being baptized, but I've got many uh, sisters and brothers who would say, no, it's got to be an adult. Um, I've worked alongside people with whom I've disagreed about the role of women in leadership. Now, I am personally extraordinarily pro and very grateful for the contribution of women at all levels of the church. But I have worked alongside other people who've taken a different view, both men and women. I've worked alongside people with whom I've disagreed about the rights and the wrongs of Brexit. It doesn't matter what I think. I've worked alongside people with whom I've disagreed about what is actually going on when we have the bread and the wine together. When I was in Chesham, I was very blessed to have a, a very strong friendship with a local Roman Catholic priest who was an absolute mad march hare called Father Alessandro uh, from Rome. And so when I went to his church to speak, uh, when, he, when he celebrated the Mass, he would turn to me first of all and give me the bread and the wine in front of everybody. And the first time he did it, there was absolute silence uh, descended and people were gobsmacked. But that was an expression of our friendship and our mutual respect. Although knowing that actually we really got down to the nitty gritty, there would be things that we would describe differently there. I've worked and worshiped alongside a variety of people and who have different opinions about which style of music is God's favorite. <laughs> um, and I have to say uh, that I love a bit of everything. Uh, you may feel differently. You may sit on other sides on all of these issues, but we are here to serve together as a family and to build God's kingdom here and to coalesce around the key uh, corners of our faith. And then with the things that are disputable as Paul describes them, 
to seek to come to a common mind, but in doing so, to do it respectfully and to do it valuing each other's conscience. Now, as you know, I am, on the whole, a friendly and respectful sort, but there have also been times when I've had to say to people, I'm going to stay your friend, I'm going to do all that I can, but if you're going to go down that particular theological road, if you're going to take, a, a, in a sense, a detour off this stuff here, then it's going to be very difficult for us to stand shoulder to shoulder in ministry and do so. And that has always been painful, but I'm sure also necessary. Let me offer you two case studies as we close. Bernie says this. Bernie says to you, comes running up to you after the service, I know the Ten Commandments say don't steal, but I read this morning in my quiet time, 1 Corinthians 3, 21, all things are yours. So I've decided I should be free to help myself to everything that I want. And, if, and, and they say, I don't like that look on your face, Simon. You're going to tell me something that I'm, I'm wrong. Just don't be so legalistic. Get with the spirit, brother. Just chill a bit. Everything is ours so I can take what I want. Well, what would you say to Bernie? Uh, you probably keep your hands on your keys and, and your phone. There are actually plentiful texts in the Old Testament and the New Testament that prohibit stealing. And there are texts which urge respect for others, and there are texts which urge contentment with what we have. There are also important New Testament texts that exhort us to engage lovingly with Bernie. So again, not to condemn her, or to just say, that's it, you're no longer a Christian, but lovingly to get alongside her and say, well, Bernie, yeah, I hear what you say about 1 Corinthians 3, but let's look at the passage as a whole, let's look at the rest of the Bible, and let's see if maybe there's another way of approaching what you've said. So we lovingly encourage Bernie uh, to see the bigger picture. And there are important texts like Galatians 6, 1, and Matthew 18, 15, in the sense that map that out for us and, and say, look, you know, if someone is in error, if someone's barking up the wrong tree, as we all do from time to time, then just get alongside them and bring them round. But what about Johnny? Johnny reads on a blog that in Leviticus 19, 19, it says that the Israelites shouldn't wear clothes made from two different kinds of material. So Johnny now feels obliged to get rid of all of his cotton and polyester shirts. And in your small group, he starts telling you that you should do the same. Now, what would you say to Johnny? To Johnny, we might say, I think, this, this doesn't belong here in the middle. There's, there's no question of salvation at stake being here. We would say this is a disputable matter. The important thing is that he is living up to his own conscience. He's taking that decision not to be legalistic, but because he really, in his heart, wants to honor God and thinks that is an appropriate way uh, to do so. So that would be the path I think we would take with Johnny. And if we were following Paul, what we might also do is to remember to wear our 100% cotton shirts to all future small group meetings, at least while he's uh, thinking that is... Uh, a good thing. So where, where does this passage leave us when it comes to being the church? 
I think this one or another helps us in a variety of ways. At first, it reminds us that we are called to mutual respect of each other. To the more established Christians, Paul says, don't be contemptuous of younger Christians. You know, we've all seen younger Christians who've sort of who've galloped into faith and they've, they've picked up on something and they're sort of bouncing around like a little puppy and they think this is the best thing that's ever happened. And, and maybe sometimes we're jaded, but maybe sometimes we've got the wisdom and experience of the years and we can say, well, I don't actually think you've got fully hold of the truth or if you have you know maybe you're magnifying it in a way that is unhelpful but to respond to those Christians with contempt is the wrong thing Paul says don't treat them with contempt respect them value them he's saying the same to younger Christians he's saying look if there are older Christians who are taking a different view on some of these things then don't judge them no, talk to them learn why it is that they've come to that particular view on some of these things that are uh, disputable. So there's a call for mutual respect. And, you know, in one sense, that's exactly what honoring one another means, isn't it? Now, I can't honor you if I don't have respect for who you are. But it also calls for a deep commitment to each other's spiritual well-being. I was saying earlier, I, you know, the number of times, I'm sure Brian's the same, I've been to, to organize a funeral uh, with a family. I mean, all, a wide-ranging conversation, and often at some stage towards the end, uh, partly because I often ha I have a God question that I, so, I tend to ask towards the end, that just to try and open up the conversation a bit more if it's necessary. And quite often the family will say to me, well, you know, Dad, I'd, we'd say he was a Christian, but he never came to church. And they're sort of saying it half apologetically, half maybe to get me on side, as, as, as though maybe I'm, I'm not going to say nice things about them unless they're a Christian. Now, of course, it's very easy to feel in your own spirit, it's a bit wishy-washy, you know, and, and you know, you've probably heard sermons about, you, you know, you can't really be a Christian and not come to church. I, I always try and say it a little bit differently, as I just say to people, wow, that must have been really hard. Because for me personally, uh, to be a Christian and not to be part of a one another community is a challenge too far. You know, that's why, I guess ultimately, in, behind the Iron Curtain during the 60s and the 70s, in what was the ultimate sanction? They would lock Christians up in solitary confinement. And for a Christian, that's the very, very biggest disaster that we can have. Often you hear, hear of Christians thriving in prison because they can share love and share, you know, knowledge of God, but to be on your own. So I always say, well, that must be so hard to have been a Christian and not to have been part of a church. All these one another's help us to see what being the church is. We will begin to bring this passage to life when we try not to be contemptuous or judgy of other Christians. And I, I really pray that in all the spheres of life within this church that you are part of, that you, that you do so. That you're not contemptuous, you're not judgy. But we will really start flying with this passage when the journey of faith of another Christian becomes more important than proving them wrong over an issue that we disagree on.
So easy, isn't it? Deep in our souls to want to be right and to be seen to be right. You know, what Paul is saying here is he's saying that, that our sisters and brothers, their journey of faith, their flourishing in Christ, their growing in the use of their gifts is more important than me proving them wrong or me being proved right when it comes to these disputable issues. And wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if that marked our church more and more? Of course we contend for truth. Of course we stand for the things that are there in the Bible, staring us in the face, and that are true and that are wonderful. But at the same time, we know there is this subset of issues that we probably are going to disagree with, where we could both get out our Bibles and say the things that, that we've interpreted that really speak to us. And that's all well and good. But in, the, in those moments and in those things, we are reminded that we are called to this respect for one another, for respect for each other's consciences, uh, but also uh, that commitment, that investment in that person growing in faith and not me being proved right. Amen.